This is life. Life as we know it. And that is the new series that we're starting this weekend, and this is what we call around hope and all play. And what we mean by that is we want everybody that's in a small group to set aside whatever study you're doing and go through the Life as We Know It study with us as we go through it on the weekend. In fact, if you're here and you're not in a small group, it's a great time to get into a small group just to try it out. Uh, I mean, four weeks, you can put up with anybody for four weeks. And if there are a bunch of weirdos afterwards, you don't have to go back. So you just say, we well, you know, only committed for four weeks. But it's a great time to check it out. And uh, as you're going through your small group, you're going to tell your story. But it's interesting, most of us, our lives isn't a story. It, it's, it's a combination. It's a collection of stories. And those stories together, they make our life. There are stories of beginning. Uh, there are stories of obstacles. There are stories of hope. And we even have a story about our future. And as you're going through those stories and, and le- getting to know each other in those small groups, each week we're going to be going through some stories in the life of David. And we're going to examine a story of his beginning, his obstacles, his hope, and his future. You may be wondering, why did we pick David? It's interesting, during the 1600-year period when God was compiling the Bible, he picked out David and he focused on him for 62 chapters. Just so you know, that's a lot. Abraham, the father of the Jews, he only got 14. Uh, Joseph got 14. Elijah, Jacob, they're, they're popular dudes, they only got 11. David got 62, more than any other character in the Bible. And not only that, there are 59 references to David in the New Testament. So I think we can safely say David was a man of great influence, incredible influence. In fact, I made a list here of some things that that have David as a focal point in the Bible. There's the city of David, the star of David, the lineage of David, the seed of David, the house of David, the tabernacle of David, the offspring of David, the root of David. A lot of things connected to David, a lot of influence. And so we're going to be looking in and examining his life. And to do that this weekend, we're going to start with a great story, 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't know where it is, don't even bother. We'll put the verses up on, on the screen. Uh, 1 Samuel 17. But before I get into the story, I need to give you a little bit of background to bring you up to speed. Uh, When God established the nation of Israel, remember he established them in the promised land. They began to grow as a nation. During that time, they had no earthly king. God was their king, which I I think would be hard to improve upon, right? God's not going to make any mistakes. He's not going to take advantage of you. So God was their king. However, as the nation of Israel, as the people were growing and expanding in the land, they they became acquainted with other nations and people from other nations. And, 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 And often the people from other nations would say, well, why don't you guys have a king? And they're like, oh, we got a king. He's, you just can't see him. He's just invisible. We, but we have one. And so they're, they're kind of embarrassed about this. And so finally they went to God and they said, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. All the other nations have a king. We want a king too, right? And God says, you don't want a king. They said, no, no, we want a king. He says, no, you don't. If you get a king, he's going to take your sons and send them off to war. He's going to take your daughters and make servants out of them. He's going to take some of your land. He's going to tax you and take money out of your pocket. You do not want a king. They said, no, we want a king. God said, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king. So they chose a king. His, the first king of Israel, was, his, his name was Saul, and he seemed like a good choice. He was very, very humble. Uh, the day of his coronation, he was hiding because he was a little embarrassed of becoming the king of Israel. Not only that, it, it says that he was head and shoulders above everyone else, so he at least looked like a king, right? But I got to tell you, Saul was a bad idea from day one. He just had troubles, he had issues, and it impacted in a very negative way the nation of Israel. So one day, God is talking to his prophet Samuel, and he says, we got to come up with a new king for this nation. And he says, Samuel, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Bethlehem. I want you to go to the house of a guy named Jesse. He's got a bunch of boys. One of those boys is going to be the next king of Israel. 
So he goes down to Bethlehem. He goes to the house of Jesse, knocks on his door and gives him a card, says, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm Sam. I'm, I'm a prophet of God. I need you to line up your boys because God has told me one of, one of your sons is going to be the next king of the nation of Israel. So, so Jesse, he gets the boys and he lines them all up. And Eliab, he's the oldest, he's the first one. And Samuel, you know, he goes and stands in front of him. He looks him in the eye. He's trying to get some kind of vibe. Is this the guy, right? And uh, it says that, you know, Eliab, he looked like a king. He's tall, dark, and handsome. And Samuel's kind of impressed. But this is where we get that great verse, 1 Samuel chapter 17, or 16, verse 7, where it says, uh, God says, hey, listen, man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. Don't be impressed by what you see. I'm more impressed by what's on the inside. He's not the guy. So Samuel goes to the next guy. He goes through each one. He gets through all the guys, and now he's a little concerned and confused because he didn't pick up any vibe from anybody that they were going to be the next king of Israel. So he turns to Jesse, and he says, hey, I know you got a lot of boys. Any chance you might be missing one? And Jesse says, well, just one, but you don't really need to see him. He's a kid. Uh, he's taking care of the sheep, and he's probably playing his harp. I think that was a point of contention for his dad, and I think, I think that makes sense. If I got a son who just sits around playing a harp all the time, I'm going to be concerned about him, right? He says, I, I doubt he's going to be the king. And, and Samuel says, well, you know what? We're going to stand right here until you get him. So he sends a messenger, and David comes running back in. He's all sweaty and smelly from being out there with the sheep. Samuel stands in front of him, looks him in the eyes, and says, mm-hmm, you're the next king of Israel. And David's like, all right, and runs back out to take care of the sheep. Doesn't really matter to him. He's like 12, 13 years old, right? And sure enough, this little snot-nosed shepherd boy, he grows up to become the king of Israel. But before he becomes the king of Israel, there are some incredible lessons that he needs to learn early on in life that's going to position him for the journey God's going to take him on. This weekend, we're going to look at one of those lessons. We're going to look at the very familiar story uh, of David and Goliath. But there's some great insights here that maybe you've never seen before. So if you have your Bible, it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. The Philistines, and they're kind of like in the old days of the war, they were like our Russia. They were the bad guys, right? Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokot in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelis, or the Israelites, another with the valley between them. And uh, last time I was in Israel, I got a chance to, to, to visit the scene of this epic battle. Uh, and, the, and the valley is really more like a canyon. It's, it's literally a mile wide. It goes up like this on the ends. And according to this verse, you've got the army of the Philistines camped out on this side. And then about a mile on the other side, you've got the army of the Israelites camped out. And then when we get to verse 4, we get to meet Goliath, right? A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine army, his height was six cubits and a span. And that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but that means that Goliath was about nine and a half feet tall. Now I'm telling you, if I got an NBA franchise in the promised land, I want him on my team, right? He is a big, big dude. But not is he just tall, you know, he's very strong. Look at his armor in verse five. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 175 pounds. His leg, on his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. So just the iron tip of his spear weighed 25 pounds. And according to this story, every day this big dude, Goliath, would walk out into the, into the middle of the valley of Elah, and he would taunt the army of Israel. You know, he'd call them sissy boys and girly boys, you know, just stuff like that, a little bit of a bully thing going on. And he would suggest something that was pretty common in the Eastern world. He would suggest a representative battle. In other words, he would say this, let's don't go to battle. A lot of blood, a lot of death. 
you pick someone. I will represent the Philistine nation, the Philistine army. You pick someone to represent the Israelite army, and we will go mano a mano, and we'll avoid all the death, all the bloodshed, all the chaos of a major battle. And whoever wins, not only does the army win, the whole nation wins. And verse 16 tells us that for 40 days the Philistine came forward, and every morning and every day, every morning and every evening, he took his stand. So he came out every day and taunted him. Come on, send somebody out. Bring it on, right? And then all of a sudden the scene changes, and we find ourselves about 15 miles away, not that far, but about 15 miles away in David's hometown of Bethlehem. And David is spending his day doing what he typically did. He's taking care of his father's sheep. And I don't think that David had any clue what was going on down at the battlefront. Remember, there was no CNN in those days, no Fox News. I'm sure he has no idea who Goliath is. He's just minding his own business, taking care of the sheep, probably playing his harp, right? But for some reason, and we're not told why, Jesse becomes concerned about the welfare of his boys that are off in battle. And so it says in verse 18, go down and see how your brothers are. And he actually packed up a little, a little care package to take to them. See how they are and bring back some assurance from them. And so David rushes off to the battlefront. And when he arrives, he is shocked at what he discovers. Now, I know because David's like probably 12 or 13 at this stage in life. Uh, if there's one thing I know about boys, we love to, we love to do battle. We love to play army. We love to shoot things and hurt things and throw rocks. And, you know, we, and I'll never forget, uh, when we moved into our house one time, the boys had kind of outgrown Legos. And I had this big Tupperware tub uh, of, of, of Legos. And I wish I'd have hung on to them because they would be worth several million dollars now because I now buy them for my grandkids. And I wish I'd have hung on to them, but the boys had outgrown them. And next door, they had some smaller children. Uh, the boys were running around. And I called them over and I said, would you guys like this big tub of Legos? And they're like, oh, they were, and they took them back and they started playing with them. And it was, a, you know, one of those big, deep tubs. About 15 minutes later, the mom comes back and she's carrying a couple little plastic guns like this. And she said, we do not allow our boys to play with guns. And they were buried in there and I didn't know it. And I said, it's okay, they're not loaded. And so I just kind of took them from her, you know. <laughs> I thought, these new moms, right? But anyway, <laughs> so I look out in the backyard. She wouldn't let them play with guns. You know what they did? Hit each other with sticks. Use their fingers. You can't take it out of a boy. They, they, and so I'm sure David is psyched up about this battle. He expects to see fear, spears flying and arrows flying and swords waving and maybe even a couple of heads rolling. I mean, shock and all, right? But instead, he sees the ultimate stalemate. The Israelites are sitting on one side of the valley, and they're doing nothing. The Philistines are on the other side. They're doing nothing. It's just sitting there. It's this classic stalemate. And I just can imagine... David just kind of making his way through the Israeli camp and he sees all of these soldiers sitting around doing whatever soldiers do when there's nothing to do, right? They're playing cards, maybe lifting weights, writing letters, talking about their families, showing off pictures of their girlfriends. And as David is walking by, he overhears a couple of soldiers and they're talking maybe about this dude named Goliath. And so David says, excuse me, what's the deal with this Goliath guy? I, everybody's talking about Goliath. What's the deal with Goliath? And they look at David and they're like, you kid, are you kidding me? First of all, he's over nine feet tall. His armor weighs more than you do. Every day he walks out into the middle of the valley and he taunts us and he dares one of us to come out and fight him. That's what's wrong with him. Nobody wants to fight him. And David's thinking, man, I have got to see this guy. And so sure enough, the very next morning when Goliath makes the, his, his presentation, you know, David, I think he's front and center, front row for, you know, the Goliath show, right? And I am confident that when David saw Goliath for the first time, I think he was thinking, wow, this is one bad dude. 
And sure enough, just like every other day, he taunts the Israelites. And David hears what he's saying, you know, all the smack talk he's giving. And he looks around, and the Israeli soldiers, they're hiding behind rocks. They're, you know, they're shaking. Nobody is making an effort to fight this guy. So David says, I'll fight him. And they're like, they can't believe what they're hearing. Like, what did you say? I'll fight him. I won't back down. I'll fight him. I'll beat him like a redheaded stepchild, you know. <laughs> Sorry if you're a redheaded stepchild. No. <laughs> I'll hit him so hard his kids will come out dizzy. I will take him on. Now, here's my question. Why would David be so willing to take on Goliath? Well, there's several reasons. We're going to see them played out in this story. But I'll tell you one thing he had learned. Giants don't just go away. And that's a valuable lesson for us. If you're facing a giant in your life, a relationship, a marriage problem, you know, uh, maybe it's your education, maybe it's your job, maybe it's a financial issue. It, you, you can hope it gets better. And it, it, giants do not go away. David's like, whoa, there's a pattern here. 40 days, twice a day he comes out. There's every reason to believe he's going to continue for the next 40 days and the next 40 days until somebody deals with this giant. I was talking to a guy at the gym one day, and he's, he's gotten to be a friend, and he comes to church sometimes, and, and uh, I know that, you know, there's a little bit of tension in the, in the family, and I, so I just asked him, how are the kids? Oh, you know, how, how's marriage? Yeah, not good. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Is it a season, or is it a pattern? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Lauren, I've been married 37 years. All marriages go through seasons. I mean, if, if you have an illness, it's a season you go through. Financial downturn, it's a season. You lose your job, it's a season. Raising children, there are several seasons right there, right? So you have these seasons. The first time you become an empty nester, that's a season. But the thing about seasons is you weather it and you get through the season. It's like moving through a storm, right? It's one thing if it's a season, but if it's a pattern, the pattern is not going to get you where you want to go. So the only thing you can do is face it and deal with it. The problem is we don't want to face it because often it's intimidating, you know. It's overwhelming. We think maybe if we just ignore it, it'll fit, fit itself. Patterns don't fit them, fix themselves. And David, he sees this with Goliath. He says, that's not going to go away. That's got to be dealt with. I'll fight him. I'll fight him. And the word begins to spread throughout the camp. Hey, there's this kid here. Who, he's saying he will fight Goliath. And eventually, the word makes its way to King Saul. And so Saul invites David to his tent. And I'm sure when he first saw David, he's like, really? Had my hopes up. You've got to be kidding. Kid, are you serious? He will rip off your head and just spit right down your throat. I don't know why you're even here, right? And David's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Before you judge me, you got to hear my resume. Look what he says beginning in verse 34. David said to Saul, here's my story. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I didn't just ignore it because I knew if I let that lion get away with it, he would just come back again. I went after it. I struck it down. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. You want to talk about confidence. David says, hey, I got a little bit of a track record going here with God. If he could help me with the lion, if he could help me with the bear, there's every reason to think he will help me with this dude. And Saul's standing there with, you know, thinking, wow, this kid's got moxie, right? So Saul, what have I got to lose, you know? 
So he says, David, come on in, at least try on my armor. It's like a 54 extra long, and David puts it on. He can, like, turn around in it, not even, you know, the armor doesn't even move. And he's like, I get this stuff off of me. If I'm going to fight this giant, I'm going to fight in my way on my own terms. And he walks out of Saul's tent, and he walks right out into the valley of Elah for this huge showdown. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones. I actually have five stones that uh, Laura and I collected from the valley of Elah, right where the fight went down. And I'm thinking one of these may have been used. Because rocks hang out, they, rocks stay around a long time. I mean, these rocks have got to get, I'll sell them. You know, if it, I'll sell them. But he went out and he picked five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistines. By the way, why did David choose five smooth stones? Uh, some people have suggested it's because if you read the story, you find out that Goliath had four more brothers. So maybe he's thinking, if I take down one, the other four might show up. But I don't think that's it. I think the reason is because, now this may surprise you, I think it's because of David's humility. See, David knew he had the talent. He certainly knew he had the ability. He knew he had taken out a lion and he had taken out a bear, but he knew he'd never taken on a giant before. And I think David had the attitude, God, <laughs> You've given me these gifts, these talents, these abilities. I got a little bit of track record with the lion and the bear. And God, I know that with your strength and your power, this ought to be a no-brainer. But God, if for some reason you don't show up, I'm in trouble. So I'm going to take just a little extra ammo. See, this is what I think about David. He was a young man of confidence. In fact, I think he had all the confidence in the world and his followers of Jesus Christ. We have every reason to be confident. Here's the difference. His confidence wasn't in himself. His confidence was in God. Like, God, if we're in this together, we should be just fine. But if for some reason you're not, I'm about to, I'm about to grab four extra rocks. Now, I've got a picture of this scene. Goliath, he's been ranting, raving, cursing, foaming at the mouth all morning. And all of a sudden, he looks across this mile-wide valley, and he sees a figure coming to him. But he can't really tell what, but as he gets closer, he realizes, wow, that's a kid. That's a kid. And he's got a, he's got a stick in one hand and he's got a sling in the other. And you know what? Goliath, he's a little insulted. It says in verse 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. But you notice David's response. You want to talk about confidence, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And look at this. I will strike you down and cut off your head. See, no one had had the bullying talk with David yet, right? <laughs> this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know just what an awesome dude I am. Know what it says. The whole world will know, yeah, there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says for the battle, get this now, the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And then the moment comes as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran not from him, quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And when David got to what he thought was just the right distance, 
He reaches into his bag. He takes out one of those stones. He puts it into his sling. And he says in verse 49, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell down on the ground. I mean, it was like he got hit by a 357 Magnum. Just boom, right? And I love the simplicity of verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, this is what I want you to stand. understand. This is how often God operates when it comes to giants. And we're going to see this even more next week as we talk about the obstacles that we face in our life. But often when God deals with giants and he deals with obstacles, no big band, no fanfare, just a stone, that's it. That's all I need. And I'll tell you why. This is what you got to understand. God has never met his match. But this is what it comes down to. What are you putting your confidence in? See, some of you sitting here right now, you're facing some form of a giant in your life, some form of an impossible situation, a nasty situation. Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it's another relationship. Maybe it's employment. Maybe it's your education and you're really, really struggling. Maybe it is your finances. Maybe it's your health. You are facing this giant. The problem is your confidence is not in God. Your confidence isn't in the right place. Your confidence is in yourself. Your confidence is in your education. Your confidence is in your business savvy. Your confidence is maybe in your abilities that God has given you or your skills. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's in your finances. You know, a lot of people think with money you can solve anything. And God's standing over on the side saying, what about me? Why don't you put your confidence in me? Because I have never, ever met my match. David put his confidence in God. said, God, come on, between me and you, this is a no-brainer. He takes out the giant. In fact, we won't read it, but he go on. He cuts off his head, takes it to Saul, says, Merry Christmas, you know. But he then took Goliath's uh, weapons, his javelin, his sword, and he put it in his tent. Do you know why? Because every morning, David could look at it and be reminded, oh, yeah. That's what God can do. And I thought about this as, as, as I was as writing my, my message. This is what I wrote down. This is our biggest problem when it comes to facing giants. Our problem is we forget what we ought to remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. We forget what we ought to remember, and, and, and we remember what we ought to forget. See, what we remember, we remember our failures. Most of us, most of us, if we've had some major failures in our life, we can recount every detail of our failures. The steps that got us there, what it was like, how we felt as we were going through it, the guilt, you know, the oppression. We can recount our failures, but we're hard-pressed to recall the incredible number of victories that God has pulled out in our lives. And because of that, when we find ourselves facing a giant, more than often, we're focused on what God can't do, what can't happen, because we're not focused on the right thing. My husband will never change. My wife will never change. My child will never change. My situation at work, it will never be resolved. This relationship can never be healed. I will never, ever get out of this financial situation. See, I, I can be like that. I can be like that. I mean, I, I got a great life. I, I was in Dallas this week with five other staff, and the cool part about, you know, these are key leaders, and, and I know them well, but it's sometimes when you get out of town and, and you're having dinner and stuff like that, that's where you really get to know each other. You begin to hear people's story, and I can really appreciate who they are. And I told them, I said, I, I, live, a pretty, I live a pretty good life. Um, I don't have to do my credit card statement. I got an assistant that does that. 
She weeds out your nasty emails, you know, gives them to Pastor Donnie, lets him deal with them. Laura, I'm a kept man. Laura bought our last house while I was in Africa. I called her on a satellite phone from a pygmy village. She said, I bought us a house. I said, cool. You know, I didn't have to do anything. We just bought a house in Holly Springs. She texted me five minutes before I preached on a Saturday afternoon. She said, hey, I bought us a house. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm a kept man, you know. Life is good for me. But I can get so overwhelmed at times with the enormity of what God, I feel, has called us to do as a church and leading this mess is like, I can just, I can go into the, I'm like Elijah. Remember Elijah, he took out the prophets of Baal, and what did he do? He went in a cave and sucked his thumb in a fetal position. And God's like, Elijah, why are you in a cave? I'm the only one that really cares about you, God. You ever feel like that? I'm the only one that's really committed. And as a pastor, sometimes I feel that way. I'm the only, I mean, God, look at these people. They won't serve. They won't give. They won't park off-site. They won't move to Saturdays, you know. Only come to church when it's convenient. The fair's not in town. Nobody offered a trip to the beach or a trip to the mountains. There's nothing to hunt, you know. They got all the yard work done. They've caught up with all their TV. Then, the, oh, hey, let's go to church. Plus, we get an extra hour of sleep. We ought to go to church. Yeah. I said, God, I can't change the world with this mess. And then I'll, I'll start complaining to Laura. And often, Laura, see, she's the calming influence in my life. This is, she'll say, honey, ignore those losers. No, she doesn't say that. See, <laughs> she wouldn't do that. She's nicer than I am. She, she's more like, honey, think about this. Maybe they don't serve yet because they just haven't gotten to the place in their Christian journey. They see the value of it. Or maybe they don't give yet because, you know what, maybe, maybe they just, they're not sure they can trust God with their finances. Or maybe they, they don't trust you with what you're going to do with their finances. Maybe that's it, you know. She always tries to find that. And, and, and she's, maybe they don't come to church very often because they're Catholic. You know, honey, they're used to only going twice a year. So we're getting them like six times a year now. We're making progress. You know, she, she just kind of works through this with me, you know. And she'll say, honey, don't forget that, remember that email you got the other day? You were reading to me. How encouraging that was. I got one this week from a lady. She said, it's my one-year anniversary. 365 days ago, I gave my life to Christ. And I cannot tell you how my life has changed over the year and how I see things and deal with things differently than I did a year ago. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I do what I do, right? She said, remember those stories. And, and think of the people that are doing all these things. And all of a sudden, but see, here's the problem. I will tend to focus on those things instead of focusing on God. And I'm like, you know, right in the cave with Elijah. Here's the problem. You stay in the cave long enough, you will never, ever know the exhilaration of staring down a giant and say, God, it is just you and me. And God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. And not only that, you'll never, ever experience the invincible feeling that comes when that giant that you're facing finally topples over and crashes to the ground. Let me just close by giving you a couple of lessons that I learned from David and his story of beginnings. Here's the first one. Hey, listen, facing a giant is scary. Let's not kid ourselves. It's a scary situation. It's intimidating. I mean, even in the eyes of faith, at the end of the day, Goliath was still a giant. And so I'm not trying to downplay what you're facing in your life. It is a scary, intimidating situation. But here's the second one. Trusting God is stabilizing. Now, let me tell you why. Every time you face a lion, every time you face a bear, every time you face a giant and God comes through, what happens is it stabilizes you a little more for the future lions and the future bears and the future giants that are sure to come your way. 
I mean, think about it. That's why David, with all the confidence in the world, could walk out into the middle of that valley. He had no jitters. That's why he didn't miss. He wasn't, ooh, he was stabilized. I mean, he had been in similar situations before. Guess what? God had always delivered. God had always come through. Every time he found himself in a situation, God had always proven himself fearful. And he remembered them. Now, my guess is that a lot of you sitting here right now, life, you just think, Mike, life just sucks. You know, you're facing some kind of intimidating situation of worry or fear. And you know what we have a tendency to think, oh, if I can just get through that. I'm telling you, one of these days, one of these days there won't be any more giants in my life. If I can just hang tough till all the giants go away, right? I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to sell my home and I'm going to pack all my stuff and I'm going to move to Bahamas. Or I'm going to move to Maui. Or I'm going to move to Fuquay, wherever it is you want to move, right? And I'm going to golf, and I'm going to fish, and I'm going to travel, and I'm going to drink martinis and smoke Cuban cigars, and I'm just going to read good books until I die. Life's going to be great. Hate to break the news to you. You'll never, ever get away from the giants. God didn't design life that way. It doesn't matter how far you go, what you do, how much money you make. You're always going to face giants. And we're going to see that in the life of David next week. Think about this. You're going to see next week. When he came back into town after killing Goliath, there was a ticker tape parade. You know what they were shouting? Saul, King Saul, has slain his thousands. Oh, but Dave, he's slain ten thousands. And David had to be thinking, life is good. You had to think from here on out, smooth sailing, downhill slide. But this is what you're going to learn in this series. Sometimes slaying a giant is nothing more than preparation for the next battle, which is often a bigger battle. But this is what David had learned, and this is what I want you to walk out of here with this weekend. Regardless of the risk, this is what I want you to know. God did not create you to be safe. He created you to be brave. He created you to be brave. You feel brave? You ever read the Chronicle of Narnia? Of Narnia? See it in Narnica. Hey, I've been doing this all weekend. I'm tired of you too. You're tired of me, I'm tired of you. It's a beautiful relationship. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, it's an allegory about Jesus. Remember Aslan the lion, you know, in there? Maybe you've seen the cartoon. But there's this little conversation that takes place. It's a great quote. It's about Aslan, who's, again, Jesus. The conversation is this, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's what, if, if you signed on to be a follower of Jesus Christ and have a relationship with God, I would say the same thing. Who said anything about safe? He's going to take you on a journey. He's going to take you on an adventure. But this is what I will tell you. He wants you to be brave. And at the end of the day, he's good and he has your best interest in mind. You know what? He can make it happen because he's the king. I think God wants us to learn the same lesson that David learned. And this is why every time we take down a giant, it builds character. Every time we take down a giant, it builds stamina. Every time we take down a giant, it builds endurance. Every time it takes down a, we take down a giant, it builds memories in our life. It builds stuff that only God can build. And it's important that David learned this early on because his biggest battles are ahead of him. Let's bow together. In just a second, the team's going to come in. I, there's a song. Please don't leave. I asked him to close with this weekend.
But this is what I, I see in this story. Early on, David learned this. If I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. But I am not going down without a fight. Because with God on my side, all things are possible. Now, in what area of your life do you need to learn the lesson with God, all things are possible? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you came in here thinking, I'm done, I'm walking away. Do you have the attitudes that says, I'm not going to go down without a fight? Because with God, all things are possible. Maybe it is the area of your education or finances, or maybe it's a relationship. I want you to understand, God has never met his match. He's never met his match. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time we've had together today. And Father, I thank you that it's great for us to have confidence. I mean, we, we are more than conquerors. But we're more than conquerors in your son, Christ Jesus. We should have all the confidence in the world as long as our confidence is in you. So, Father, I pray that you would remind us that whereas the Philistines thought they had a champion, you are our champion, and you go to battle for us every day. And, Father, just challenge us not to live safe, but to live brave. And to even put our neck on the line because we know, we know that if you're with us, all things are possible. In your name we pray. Amen.